Welcome to the Curve Thought Podcast. This is episode two. I'm Sean Rasamfu. Okay, so in the previous episode, I had an interesting discussion with Gideon's guidance, kind of me, not Gideon's. Um, kind of crossing wires here. But we discussed God, we discussed, we touched on cosmology, um, sexuality, just a wide variety of topics. We didn't necessarily get agreement on all these things. But the one thing we did do was have the conversation, right? And we heard one another, even though we vehemently disagreed. And at the end of the day, our disagreement was primarily as a result of some of the biases that we went in into with this conversation, right? Um, my bias, as he particularly expressed, is, or that we expressed throughout, throughout the conversation, is I am fully biased into believing that any and all forms of knowledge are discoverable. Uh, how The difficulty of that discovery is something else, but I, I think that for the most part, when we refer to the active world, we're talking about things that can be discovered versus things that can't be discovered. And his bias was that the subjective experience is in and of itself its own form of knowledge and that can actually tell you objective facts about reality. I disagreed because I think you have to find objective facts and subjectivity tells you nothing about it. He went disagreed in the opposite direction. But the reason why I bring this up is because what I want to talk about right now is there are certain biases that we allow to creep into our conversation that honestly cloud our vision and disallow us from hearing what someone says, right? It is very possible for someone to say something that makes complete and total sense but that you refuse or that it only seems to not make sense because of your particular biases, right? And in this particular case, I was listening, I woke up listening to radio um, as one does in the morning and I was listening to Eusebius' show, which is, as always, fantastic. Shout out to Eusebius Makaiser. And during the open line conversation, so there were a few callers who were relating their stories um, from within the colored community, specifically in Ellos, El Park. And it's been an ongoing story that I've seen Eusebius actually covering. And it's been actually incredible to see because the colored community is legitimately one of the most ignored parts um, or the most left behind parts of our society, especially of the rainbow nation stage of our democracy, you know? These are people that not haven't necessarily been included really in what we want to in what we've decided to do post democracy in our country. So props and great shout outs to Eusebius for handling that and getting more involved with the colored community and ensuring that their stories are told as their own. Because I think very often what ends up happening is that the colored community has find, often finds itself in a situation where they get legitimately co-opted. And they are, when they speak about issues in public, they're forced to basically reason as black people. And every conversation they have that treats them as black people, where, whereas they're not. They have their own community and their own problems, and black people have left them behind. We've sort of decided that, well, they are just with us. We're going to take them on... Um, as part of our bandwagon. And that's definitely something that needs to change. There is a lot of richness and uniqueness about the color community that us as black people need to be able to recognize as separate from ourselves and as deserving of as much respect as ourselves 
And this is something perhaps, not perhaps, that we've definitely, as a society, have failed at. We've, for the most part, failed a colored community. Um, as much as we failed the poor in general in society in South Africa, at the very least, the government pretends to care about the black poor. It doesn't necessarily make that concession about colored poor. And that's something that needs to change. But anyway, the reason I bring this up is there was one specific caller who, he was a white man. Um, I don't always like listening to white men. White men say a lot of fairly disturbing things, especially on these topics, because they often don't make sense. But this particular white man made a terrifying amount of sense on this particular issue. Um, not necessarily on the issue of the colored community, but on the issue of the reconciliation narrative, I think they agreed to call it him and Eusebius. So I don't know if, if they're gonna podcast that out, but what I got from what he was saying, this particular white man, he was saying how he fully understands why the narrative, especially as it exists around reconciliation, why it happened as it did, right? So they started there and they had maybe some minor quibbles about it. And then he said something very interesting. He was saying that he is concerned that in our pursuit of reconciliation, we focus too much on the white man, on the white male, right? Both in the white male's role and complicity in apartheid, their continued beneficiaries thereafter, and in their role in breaking down the system for the future. And he said something interesting. He said that he is concerned that we might go, that, that he said that he, he agrees that this is a good thing, but he's concerned that if we should go too far in that direction, we might come out at the other end realizing that now we are in persecution mode of white people rather than simply the mode where we force them to acknowledge their role and complicity in all the issues that we really confront. Now, he was, he was like vilified by both Eusebius and another caller who came thereafter for the usage of the word persecution. He said other things, we'll get to that. Um, just want to focus at the beginning of this. Um, his usage of the word persecution to describe this particular problem. And Eusebius rightly said that what we say unconsciously when we're not necessarily guarding our words is what we actually feel. And that in and of itself can be very telling of the biases that we have. And he was completely correct saying this Eusebius but missing the point that this is a legitimate concern that it is a legitimate problem that in in how we try to formulate what we want to do redistributively in terms of justice what we want the role we want white people to be playing especially white men in how we phrase term the conversation around reconciliation and what we do on the ground with regards to reconciliation you really can't get to the point where we are simply persecuting them. This is not to say that they haven't persecuted us in the past. This is not to say that white people have done enough right now. This is not to say white people are doing enough at this particular present moment in time. This is not, not to say white people will ever do enough. This is not to say that simply acknowledging white privilege is enough in and of itself um, to do away with all the past. This is not to say that there could ever be, be a state in time where we could all feel that white people have legitimately pay their dues, as it were, right? This is not to say any of that. This is not, to, like, I'm not praising a white, any particular white man simply for saying the correct things at a time. Um, I will be very critical of white people and whiteness because it is a very real thing, and it does tinge a lot of our conversations. But um, the caller who came after this described everything that this guy said as white-splaining, but 
So starting here, I'll, I'll try to go through why it wasn't. It is a fact of human psychology that if you focus on one person or one group of people or one type of person for an overly long time as an exemplifier or as the, the face of all your problems, even if it might be historically accurate, right? This is because this is historically accurate, right? Men in particular are the face of black problems in Africa or in the world generally, um, at least in a historical sense. This is, but to, to miss the fact that this could easily lead into a state where we simply persecute them, where we simply vilify them, where it is not possible for white people to even be part of the reconciliation narrative, that is true. And this is true whether or not, you don't have to agree with white people for this to be true. You don't have to even like white people for this to be true, to be able to admit that there can easily come a point where you've gone past what is reasonably expected with regards to your pursuit of justice, with regards to your pursuit of genuine reconciliation, and you venture into territory that is reserved for pure persecution. His history attests to this. We know what can happen if this is something that you do. Now, we're not, I don't think we're at that stage yet. We're pretty far from there. I do genuinely think that white people still have a lot of things to answer for that we haven't forced them to account for. But we have to be able to imagine a possible future where what, how the past has played out, and not that we forget it, but that we've, we've removed the inbuilt advantages that the prior systems has given to white people, at least as, as, as much as we can. We can Im easily imagine a future where as much as possible, we've leveled the playing field. White privilege will probably still exist. There will still be things that they can do probably that black people wouldn't be able to do naturally. But in as far as much as can reasonably be expected of us as a society, we'll have done our duty and done our part. Now, at that point, when that day does come, the question becomes, will we stop focusing on the white males? And I think the, the, the thing that Derek was trying to say is that if we continue framing the conversation, if, if we don't talk about that fact, right? If we don't talk about what will we do with white people next? If we don't talk about the fact of what happens when, when we've done what we're trying to do, Let, let's say either white people leave the country or they all get involved um, full tilt into the project of reconciliation or they do nothing. Either way, when we accomplish what we're trying to accomplish at the end of it, it's not like white people will no longer exist. They'll still be here. They'll still be around. Even if we boot them from the country, they'll still exist in the world. They'll still have to interact with us in our businesses. They'll still be people online. They'll still be a part of just the fabric of society that we as South Africans will be simply by proxy of being connected to the global world, we will know that they are a feature in our lives. And what will we do with them then? Do we honestly believe that the way we're treating them right now, in terms of how we phrase our conversations around white people, do we honestly believe that at that stage we'll stop and everything will be cool? Do we honestly believe that future generations of white people um, will feel as part of the society that we're trying to build as we would hope everybody else feels? Do we honestly believe that? And I don't think that's necessarily accurate, given how the conversations are around whiteness and around white people. This is not to say whiteness is a bad thing. Like, discussing whiteness is a bad thing. Again, I am fully on board with the things that need to happen, with the, I hesitate to use the word roasting, but 
the incision into whiteness on a personal psychological level for all humans, for all South Africans, does need to happen, especially for white people. And their account and humility before the rest of us, when they account for the sins of their forefathers and their continued benefit for the sins of their forefathers, is something that obviously needs to happen. It's something that obviously has not been done enough, that needs to be done in, in, in greater proportion than it is being done now. But, but, there is a legitimate danger of us going too far in the opposite direction. And, and, and then at a point, the, you know the thing that a lot of people say right now, which is honestly bullshit, where people say, I wasn't there, I'm being persecuted for the sins of my fathers, yada, 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 yada. Well, obviously we all know that every white person alive today is still a beneficiary of prior racism. But we have to be able to imagine that this is not how we want society to be forever. Simply because the world is this way right now, there has to come up. We, we cannot be going into this project of trying to actually build a better future if we don't believe that future can be built, if we don't believe whiteness can be dismantled, if we don't believe that white privilege can be brought low, if we don't believe that we can, in some sense, uplift the rest of our community to the point where the inbuilt advantages of being white no longer seem to materially matter. If you honestly don't believe that that's ever possible, then what's the point? Why are we doing any of this right now? But if you do believe it is possible, then you also have to be able to, not, you have to, be able to ask yourself at what point will white people have done enough? Where, or what, what, at what point will whiteness be brought low enough that it no longer seems to matter? I'm not saying this is something that's going to be achieved in a or two or three or four generations, but I'm saying that this is something that should, should be achievable, that, that should be doable, should be accomplishable. And when we get there, will we stop focusing on white men? And I don't think so. I'm not sure, given how acrimonious the space is right now, um, around white people. And the next thing that the guy said that I, that I found to be interesting is he said that... Um, <laughs> he, says, he says something that's like kind of tilting, actually. He said that if we were to... He said redistribution of land is necessary, but if we were to do it all overnight, we would go hungry. And for obvious reasons, you know, Eusebius disagreed with him on that. Um, but... I don't think you can factually say he's incorrect. If we were to tomorrow overnight, especially the farmlands, right? It's one thing to redistribute land, um, like property land. It's one thing to redistribute businesses and to redistribute the, simply the, the land that we, just fruitful land that you have as your own, that you don't necessarily use for farming, right? Simply land that you own. That's one thing in its entirety. But if we were to overturn... Uh, the farming infrastructure as it exists right now, which for better or for worse, is in control of white hands. It might be for worse, fine, but they are in control of it right now. And knowing that if you were to overturn that control overnight, that would be a bad thing. Not because they deserve the control intrinsically, simply because them having it right now means that they, un they have the better, best understanding at the present moment of how it currently functions. Now, that's something that we as a society need to work on to disentangle that control from them. But doing it spuriously and overnight and in a reckless fashion would be bad for the country. We would lose food. We would not be in a good position thereafter. Now, I don't have to like this fact for it to remain a fact. And pretending otherwise is basically ideology. There's a reason why when we talk about farmers being murdered, right? If you were to mention a farm murder at any given point, 
you know you're talking about white people. Now, I'm not one of those people that says that this is at, at all one of the major problems we need to be focusing on, um, the, the, the entire farm killing narrative, but recognizing that when we speak about farmers in the context of South Africa, we by necessity are mentioning Afrikaans people, white men, are part of the farming infrastructure that we've built up right now. And overturning that overnight would lead to disaster. It would lead not necessarily to famine, but you have to admit that the amount of food that we have, the amount of distribution of the food, and the way that we currently prop up the food infrastructure in our country would be damaged by such a move. Not knowing this, or not knowing exactly how it will be damaged, doesn't necessarily mean that it won't be damaged at all. And he made the caveat that by saying that doing this overnight would be a bad thing. Um, and then he said, okay, this is one area of disagreement I'd have with, with the white caller. He says that doing this over a period of 30 years um, would make bit more sense. Um, I don't think it would necessarily take an entire 30 years. I think you can do it in 10 or 15. But the underlying logic is that m making such material changes to the world around us, right, creating the world that we fundamentally want to live in, is a process that does take time. And human history attests to the fact that when you try to do this process in heavy jump starts, and when you try to do this by basically flipping over the table and seeing what everything lands on at the bottom, does lead to disaster. It does lead to a problematic situation. It does lead to bad, it does lead into a situation whereby nobody really knows what's going on, and everyone's basically flying by the seat of their pants, trying to construct and understand at the same time, which doesn't seem to make sense to me. I feel like you need to be able to understand first and then construct, which is the way we've been doing it so far, which has been going mixed results, admittedly. But understanding does have to precede um, what we do materially. Eusebius um, did make the one point that there is basically a limit to reconciliation. So I think ideally the idea of reconciliation is we want to be able to all try and, and understand each other to the degree where we can then start to make changes at, like collectively as a society. We can all understand what we want society to look like when we're done. As difficult as a process of being done would look like or the, the process of getting to that end goal would look like, the base agreement of, what the, of the fact that we want this project to be undertaken is something that needs to happen. And Eusebius did definitely mention the, the correct point that doing that reconciliation and the understanding process without changing the material conditions which allowed for the problems to exist in the first place is just a ticking time bomb. It's going to lead to disaster. It's going to just completely screw things up at the, at the outer process. And I agree with him. That is entirely true. That part of the problem is that we waited so long to actually start addressing the land question. It took us 20 years before we even started really considering this uh, beyond a mere conceptual level because we spent so much time on reconciliation. That brings me to the, the one other thing that the dude said that actually um, made sense from a white person. He said that it probably would have been better um, overall if we were simply concerned with redistribu redistributive justice. It would have made more sense and have been better to kick white people out of the country at the dawn of democracy. Now, I know a lot of us, a lot of people today still think that might have been the better move. Um, I'm not always sure how I feel about this. I'm, I'm, I'm not really for it but I could probably be convinced that there's a good argument for it. But nevertheless, if we, if we did that, right, it might have been better. It, been, it would have gotten 
material changes faster. Definitely, this is not in dispute. And we don't know if that might have been a good or a bad thing, but, but we didn't. Like, we really have to digest the fact that we didn't. And not doing it then, at the dawn of what we want, at the dawn of democracy, choosing not to do that then, choosing, in some sense, to focus on reconciliation. Not that we can talk about whether or not that was the best or worst decision. But what it does do is it locks us in a course of action into building a society that does include white people. The ship has sailed where we can simply say, all right, y'all get the fuck out, and that's how we're going to solve it at this point. That could have happened if we'd focused on redistributive justice then. We didn't. We're focusing on it now, but the fact that we focused on reconciliation then means that it became part and parcel of the foundational fabric of what we actually are trying to do with our democracy. At that point, we, ha we, we tacitly said that whatever society is going to look like for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years will include white people. Now, now the job is much harder because we stopped doing the reconciliation thing. We stopped doing the... We didn't, we didn't do either. We, we completely blindsided ourselves. We didn't focus at all on actually trying to build this, this society in terms of the human elements. And we also didn't account for the material elements of what the society should look like either. We basically dallied in the dark for 20 years until it became a big thing. The ticking time bomb that you see this mentioned comes back up and now we're in danger of imploding. But the fact of the matter that at, when we could have focused simply on removing the white problem, we didn't. Now we have to grapple with the fact that there's the solution to our problems, the solution to the societal problems that we all agree we have, the, 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 the solution that is going to reduce the fissures between the groups in our country, the solution that is going to make our society one that we actually want to live in, one that is actually a better society for all. That solution, that promised world, that, I hesitate to use the word utopia, but that place where we all actually want to go will include white people. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, Will it include them happily or not? Will it include them as equals, actually, is the question. Now, clearly, white people are not equal right now in that they have greater advantages than every other group in the country. Nobody, nobody has it as good as a white person, as especially as a white man. But the day that they do, the, the day that everybody has it relatively as good, if, if that's what we want, if we admit that that, that, that that can be done at all, if it can't be fine, then a different conversation need be had. But if we can admit that that can be done, how will we be treating our white people at that point? How will we be talking to and about them? And do we believe that the current trajectory of conversation around this particular group of people will empower us to when we fix the problems that white people have caused? Do we believe that we'll be empowered thereafter to treat white people as equals? Or at that point, will we devolve into persecution as history suggests can happen? when there's a particular group that is debased through societal measures, history does suggest that it can happen, that you can go too far in the opposite direction, and then those people become the new second-class citizens. Now, I know many of us, many of us, wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily say that, that, that treating white people as second-class citizens would be a bad thing. But if you don't believe that that's a bad thing, I believe that you should at, we should at least be honest about your intention then. 
and say it. Say that we'd be fine having white people be the second-class citizens at some point. And then th th that changes the dynamic of our discussions. But if ostensibly we want an equal society, if, if that is our stated goal, then, then we have to ask ourselves if tactically the way we talk about white people and the discussions we have concerning white people and white people themselves need to have this discussion amongst themselves because every time I hear white people talking and they don't think I'm listening, you know, out of the corner of my ear, it sounds like they don't themselves believe that it's ever going to be possible for them to be uh, involved in the new society. And that's, that's their shit. Like, they, they need to come to the table. Of course, of course, let me, let me be categorically clear. The majority of the heavy lifting in this project is going to have to come from white people. It is going to have to be white people in majority that do the work of getting, coming to the rest of us, trying to reconcile, humbling themselves, recognizing their role and their complicity in apartheid, in racism, in white supremacy, in colonialism, in slavery, and their continued benefits thereafter, recognizing how white privilege materially impacts day by day the lives of those around them, and that their whiteness can, simply by existing, make the lives of other people, of colored people, of black people, of Indian people, materially worse, right? That work, that, the place of white people in society and them earning it, because they haven't earned it yet, I don't believe so, but them earning their place in our society is almost entirely a job that must be done by the white community and nobody else can do it for them. This, I, I cannot say more clearly than that. However, we cannot while recognizing that white people need to do this, we can't pretend that us as black people, as colored people, as, as Indian people, us as non, as the people that are observing the white community and, and thinking about what, they, what their role should be in the new society, we cannot imagine that we will never end up in a position where we treat white people as the worst people as the group that deserves to be in some sense denigrated, the group that deserves to be persecuted. And the word persecuted, as insane as it sounds, when you think about, especially about white people, because, we, come on, when has a white person been persecuted? Not acknowledging that it could happen, simply by acknowledging how history has played out in the past and how human beings can react psychologically when you focus on a particular group as the source of your problems, whether or not they may be your source correctly, right? But the way we frame the conversation around that, not acknowledging that it could become problematic and we could easily find ourselves in the space where we become the persecutors is, I don't think, beneficial to us either. Not beneficial to us as black people psychologically and it's not beneficial to the society that we're trying to build. Now, not everybody might agree with me on this, but I do think that at this point, that's how this, this has to play out. This is how we have to start thinking about things because I, I can already see inclinations of problems or, or, or the, you can already see the writing on the wall is what I'm saying, where I can see that the future society we want to build will not have space for white people. And I'm not sure if that's a society that, I'm not sure if that's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing to categorically exclude them at a future point based on the actions that have been happening in the past. If that's, but, but that depends almost entirely on what we actually want to build as a society. 
But um, at this point, I feel like I'm just talking in circles. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is Sean Klamfu, Curve Thoughts Podcast, Episode 2, signing off. Thanks for joining me. This was Sean talking about whiteness, and I'll see you on the flip side.